You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7 p.m. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Yuri Falsztyński, Russo-American historian, whose book From Dzerzhinsky to Putin has been just published in Poland. Political Periscope. Dzień dobry. Good morning. Dzień dobry. In front of me, I have your book, The Third World War, The Battle for Ukraine. There is a question mark here, but this book uh, is already seven years old or eight. Do you think that what we are experiencing now is the Third World War? Uh, I think the 24th of February of this year will be written in a history book, well, history books, as the beginning of the Third World War. So, yes, I think this was started. I think it was started on 24th of February. The question is, of course, how long this war uh, will continue and uh, what price we will pay for the victory over aggressor uh, in our particular case, of course, over Russian Federation. And uh, what would you consider the victory over Russian Federation? How it has to end to be considered a victory? Uh, this is a very difficult question, and here's the uh, problem. Of course, this book was published in 2015, and it was uh, obvious in 2015, after Russia invaded uh, Crimea in March of 2014, that this is just the beginning of the implementation of major program for Putin, for the Russian government. And in 2014, somehow they stopped. They had this plan to proceed further. And there are some indications that, uh, you know, Putin was starting to realize, you know, this program of recreation of the Soviet Union. I will give you one example, which is ridiculous, but, but interesting. In September of 2014, they recreated uh, TAS, Telegraph Agency of the Soviet Union. So there was no Soviet Union, but they renamed uh, RIA Novosti, Russian, you know, Telegraph Agency. Estas. And this is this was one of indications that, yes, Putin was trying to rebuild Soviet Union. But uh, he stopped in 2014. And I think the reason he stopped was because Ukrainians uh, started to fight against uh, Russians in Donbass uh, region. And the quick victory, you know, over annexation of Crimea, you know, nevertheless, didn't allow Putin to believe that the entire Ukraine uh, would be taken without a shot, like like in Crimea. So Donbass experience was something new. Uh, they nevertheless, uh, you know, were fighting there, and Putin decided that it's not time to have a full full scale war because in order to have a full-scale war and to take control over Ukraine, you need to attack uh, from Belarus into the direction of Kiev. And I think this was the main reason why they stopped in 2014. And in the book, which was published again in 2015, we indicated that we should watch for Belarus. And the moment Russians are taking control over Belarus, we should expect the attack over Ukraine. And this, unfortunately, what, of course, happened on, on 24th of February. And now this uh, should 
should be viewed in the context of major political statements which Putin made and some other members of the Russian government made as well, uh, starting 2014, that they are planning to reshape the borders of Europe created in 1991. And so this time we knew that he plans to take uh, back uh, Ukraine, Moldova, for example, in Moldova, in the area which is called Transnistria, where Russian ethnic minority lives, they started in 2014 to issue Russian passports. And they issued altogether 220,000 Russian passports to Moldovan citizens. This was done to build the case of quote-unquote genocide against Russians in Moldova. By the way, the same was done in Georgia in 2008, prior to the Russian invasion of Georgia. So, there were some indications that that uh, Russians uh, plan to invade. Also, it happened in Crimea. I remember well being in Crimea in 2008, and we heard that uh, it was very easy to obtain a Russian passport. It's just enough to go to a library and you can get it there. You said that Putin wants to restore Soviet Union. Well, another example is Dzerzhinsky's monument on Lubyanka, which uh, appeared, reappeared uh, during his uh, government. Well, the, the, uh, no, the monument at the square they took down, uh, what they put back uh, was kind of memorial, granite memorial, uh, you know, stone to Andropov, to Andropov. But yes, uh, the problem, of course, was that Putin starts every time he starts an aggressive move. Uh, we we do not know if this is a bluff or or a reality which we are going to face tomorrow. And indeed, it's it's both. He starts with a bluff and then hoping that the, this bluff will work. This is very interesting. Uh, he always hopes that the bluff will work and people would capitulate. And also his experience, I should say, should indicate that he's wrong every time, but that's what he's doing again and again. So when they were concentrating troops along the uh, Ukrainian border, for example, the, uh, well, the majority, I should say, of people who looked at situation uh, was saying that he's bluffing, that they will never uh, start the war, that all they are doing are trying to force Ukrainians to capitulate and to give up, you know, even before the war is actually starting. And uh, we do know that on 24th or 25th, depending on the day of the time of the day, uh, Lukashenko called Vladimir Zelensky on behalf of Putin and offered him to capitulate. And Zelensky refused, and then Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. My point is that if, let's say, Zelensky would agree to Putin's conditions, then this bluff would work. But Zelensky refused, and Putin started the war. And the idea was that uh, they will take uh, Ukraine very quickly. Uh, they were already in Belarus, so the, the major uh, move was from uh, Belarus into the direction of Kiev. Everybody, except Ukrainians, I have to say, were very skeptical about ability of Ukrainian army to hold Russian advance, because those days, if you remember, it, the Russian army was called the second strongest army in the world. And I really sometimes think that this war was won by Zelensky when he not just refused to capitulate, this was 
probably expected in, in many ways. But when he refused to leave Kiev, and when he refused to, to leave Ukraine, to leave Kiev for Lvov, for example, at that moment, I think he won the war. And as we know, after nine months of this war, Russia has no army. This army was destroyed in Ukraine. You said that uh, Zelensky won the war, but the war is still going on and there are still massive fights, there are still massive missile attacks. Uh, correct. It's like, unfortunately, a circle. Ukrainians are winning this war in the field. I mean, they're winning every battle. But the conditions under which uh, they're conducting this war are not actually fair. It's true that Ukraine is getting a lot of help and this help is great and important and uh, we, we cannot underestimate uh, Uh, Ukrainians are getting weapons, they are getting financial support, they are getting help with uh, refugees who, who are forced to leave the country during the wartime. But uh, at the same time, Ukrainians are getting help under certain conditions. Uh, the condition number one is that they are not getting offensive weapons from the West. They are getting only defensive kind of weapons from the West. The condition number two, and it's a very important political condition, that Ukrainians are not firing against territory of the enemy, Russian Federation and Belarus. And if you think about this from military point of view, Ukrainians, well, no one is able to win the war if they're not allowed to fire into enemy's territory. This is just impossible. So all the Ukrainians are winning every day in the battle. They are not able to defeat Russia because the, the conditions under which they are conducting this war guarantee that Russia could not be defeated the way that Russia would feel the defeat. And this is the most important part because from Putin's point of view, he doesn't really care how many Russians are killed, and he is sending more and more and more and more troops, and those troops are not experienced, and they're probably losing a lot against Ukrainian forces, but once again, Putin doesn't care. And at the same time, because Ukrainians do not have offensive weapons and do not have uh, weapons which would, you know, guarantee that Russia could not attack them from the air, Putin is destroying Ukraine piece by piece. And since he is destroying it with the greater speed that Ukrainians are able to fix every time what's destroyed, he is actually winning this battle, especially taking into account that winter is coming and Ukrainians are left uh, without electricity and water and heat. So my point is that unless the West will change its attitude towards this war and unless the West would allow Ukrainians to conduct uh, this war as an offensive war, we are going to face a major humanitarian disaster in Ukraine and, and also in Europe, because, you know, Europe probably would face more refugees, which uh, Europe would have to deal with. And again, he's destroying the country. He's not able to destroy the army. He's not able to win militarily, but he's just destroying the country from the air. In the introduction to your book, uh, From Dzerzhinsky to Putin, 
to Polish edition of this book, you wrote that you're very sorry for appointing not correct date of the end of Putin's reign. So it was uh, supposed to be the year 2036, but uh, because of the war, this end will be sooner than 2036. Don't you think that despite that Ukraine is not able to militarily defeat Russia because it's not allowed by West to invade or to, to fight back on Russian territory, the longer this war goes on, the worse is the situation inside of Russia and maybe there will be some internal movement that will change the government that will bring Putin's regime to fall. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the book From Dzerzhinsky to Putin was written and finished prior to 24th of February. And uh, we wrote there that Putin created a very stable regime and he would be able to stay as president until 2036. This is the year when Putin, of course, declared that he he plans to be president of Russia until 2036. And there were special laws passed for this and Russian constitution was changed because this was unconstitutional. So we were saying that he could stay as president until 2036 unless he starts a major war. And if he starts a major war, and again, this was written before 24th of February, this would be the end of Putin's regime, the end of Putin personally, and the end of Russian Federation in a format in which it exists now. And yes, I think that on 24th of February, he started this war. But after nine months of this war, a major change uh, happened. Again, this war was planned by Putin as a third world war against the West, but a very quick one, like a blitzkrieg. He he would plan, you know, to take Kiev in a week or two, to reinstall uh, Yanukovych, to proceed to Moldova, and then with united forces of uh, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, uh, because there is an army, as uh, a Russian army in Transnistria, for example, which is there, kind of waiting for a signal, uh, proceed to the Baltic states, uh, which are members of NATO, of course, we know this. But uh, Putin knew that uh, NATO doesn't have ground forces equal to this Russian, Russian-Ukrainian, Belarusian army, and uh, that the West probably would not risk a nuclear confrontation and would have, you know, to give up back the Baltic states to Russia. And that's how he was planning to recreate the Soviet Union. And this plan was ruined by Ukraine, which started to fight and which destroyed in the course of nine months, destroyed the Russian army. So Putin of, on 21st of September, he announced mobilization of 300,000 people. This became a kind of anecdote because by the end of his speech, actually more than 300,000 people just left the Russian Federation because the borders are still open. You know, Russia exists in the format of open borders, and those people whom he was trying to draft just left Russia by plane, by cars, some actually went by foot to cross the border. So, he is not, again, he is not able to win this war militarily, he has no ground army to invade the Baltic states, for example, what wasn't the case prior to 24th of February, but he has nuclear weapons. And this is the only weapon and literally the only tool 
he has, uh, because after nine months of war, they changed tactics, uh, they changed rhetoric, but they did not change the, the objectives. They had the objective to take control over Eastern Europe, and they still have it. But again, the only weapon they have is uh, nuclear weapons. And we hear very often from different people of the Russian government, including Putin, Patrushev, Medvedev, former president, who is a close associate of Putin, of course, Shoigu. We see this blackmail or bluff or warning that they are going to use nuclear weapons. And the, the question for which we do not really have an answer, of course, if this is a bluff, if this is a blackmail, or if this is a warning. And the problem is that the longer this war continues, I am afraid that psychologically we are moving closer and closer and closer on both ends, uh, here in Europe and in Russia, to the accepting of possibilities that this might be a nuclear war. We are talking about Vladimir Putin, a person who lifted Russia from the crisis of the 90s, a person who successfully established very strong government and uh, reinforced Russia. How is it possible that now he's making so many mistakes, such as attack on Ukraine? Another mistake, uh, you just said, mobil- mobilization in this form, and another, and another. Why is it happening? Well, first of all, I do not see Putin as a dictator. I do not look at him as if he is a Russian Lukashenko, for example. Lukashenko is a typical and classical dictator. Uh, Putin is not. Putin came to power in 2000 as a representative of the FSB, and he was ruling Russia on behalf of the FSB uh, all these years. And and even now, he's still president of Russia on behalf of the state security, the FSB. So, if Putin is replaced tomorrow, if something happens to him tomorrow, if he dies tomorrow, if he's killed tomorrow. I do not believe that this necessarily will bring some changes. Not really. Besides the fact that if a new person would come, somehow we intend to think that he might be better than Putin. Indeed, he might be worse than Putin. This is also a possibility. He, you know, partially in some extent he was lucky. He was lucky because he was chosen as president. There was some couple, at least couple other candidates from the FSB, but there were other candidates. Uh, with the economy, it's very simple. When, when you know, Yeltsin was in power, the price for oil was like $8, $12 per barrel. Uh, now we know that the price of oil is many, many, many times higher. This is the, the answer to the question about the economic success of the Russian Federation after, under uh, Putin. But, you know, the mistake mistake which they make, they make as an institution, they sincerely believe in force. The KGB traditionally, from the day when it was formed, they, of course, elected very special people to, to work for them. They, they are not literally like you and me. These are people with completely different logic and they believe in power and they believe in force and they believe in killing and they were trained to kill and destroy it were never trained to build and uh, when they 
took power in 2000. They very quickly took control of the entire country and created a situation when, for the first time in history, really, for the first time in history, we do not know other examples, the KGB was in charge of the state, and the KGB this time was in charge of the army as well. That's why we are having all those difficulties, because for the first time in human history, the, the special services uh, rule the country without any political control. In the Soviet Union until 1991, they had this political control. I mean, this was the political control of the Communist Party, which was terrible, etc., etc. But nevertheless, this was a kind of political control. Now they do not have this political control. And again, these are people who were never trained to rule even, right? Uh, they, they were trained to destroy. That's, they believe in force and they believe in uh, forcing other people to capitulate, to give up. They have difficulties to understand that the world is different and that it's not going to give the, the freedom in exchange for, I do not know, peaceful life under the control of the Russian Federation. And besides, and this is another problem, Russia always existed as an empire. It was a Russian empire prior to 1918. It was Soviet empire prior to 1991. So unfortunately for all of us, Russians sincerely believe that this is their destiny to exist as an empire, not as a normal, you know, usual typical uh, European state. And that's why it was very easy for Putin to sell to Russians this idea that uh, whatever is wrong with them, whatever problems they have, they have because the world does not want to recognize the right of Russia to exist as an empire and to have control over other nations without which Russia does not really have this reason to exist. It sounds slightly crazy and anti-rational, and it is crazy and irrational, but that's precisely what they are selling to Russian public, that Russia does not have reason to exist if it's not allowed to exist as an empire. And that's what we are dealing with now. You said that even in the case of Putin's death, for example, someone else from FSB would replace him. So, natural question, who? Well, I do not think this is really important. Many people are saying that the obvious candidate uh, is uh, Patrushev, who is former director of the FSB, as well as Putin was, uh, and he's now in charge of Security Council of the Russian Federation, which is... Uh, kind of structure which actually honestly doesn't have any power. But uh, unless Patrushev would prefer to stay as number two person in Russia, because in many ways it's safer to be num number two than to be number one, because number one could be the person who usually, you know, who might uh, lose a hat if something goes wrong. This is not really important, but this is a major problem, because if, if this would be just a, an issue of taking down Putin, you know, all right, we could take down Putin or we could wait until he dies and then everything would be somehow fixed. I think the problem is deeper. I, I think the, the reality is that we somehow have to take uh, Russia out of control of the FSB. And this is a very serious structure. It was created in December of 1917. 
This is a structure which is more than 100 years old. This is the only structure, the only institution uh, which survives the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's a huge one. We even now do not really know how many people work for this structure. It has different levels. It has, you know, public level, which we see. It has an institute of officers of active reserve. That's how they call it. They also have a network of uh, a secret agents. It's a huge structure which infiltrated the entire society of the Russian Federation. It's really very difficult to destroy it or take power from them. And again, unless Russia is defeated and under defeat, at least psychologically, I uh, I mean the defeat of the level which uh, on which Germany was defeated in 1945, we will continue to have difficulties with Russia. And again, we are not even talking about possibility of this war transferring into nuclear confrontation, then it's going to be a different world, and uh, even my fantasy doesn't allow me to, to speculate about this. Do you think it is possible that Russia will collapse and break a Soviet Union into independent states? Well, I, I think some some of uh, territories, some territories will separate from Russian Federation, and we know what those territories are. This is, is the Chechen Republic, Dagestan, Ingushetia. But I do not, I, I know some people believe that Russia probably will collapse and, uh, you know, will be split into separate states. I do not really believe so. I do not see any examples in world history when a national state would somehow be divided into several states. Uh, of course, we have a case of North and South Korea and West and East Germany, but this this was under, you know, foreign some foreign intervention and for ideological reasons. So, I, I do not really expect, you know, civil war happening in Russia. No, this I do not uh, expect at all. But I do believe that if this war uh, continues for a very long time, and especially if nuclear weapons involved, uh, then Russia at the end will be defeated, will collapse, will be punished. And, you know, Russians probably would, of course, hate Putin and everything was happened to them the way Germans were hating Hitler and everything was happened to Germans. But again, the question is what price we are going to pay for all this. And this price might be high if we do not find the way to end this war quickly. And the only way, my view is that the only way to, the only chance we have to win this war quickly and do not allow Putin to develop this war into nuclear confrontation is to help Ukrainians with offensive weapons and to help them to win. Because, indeed, again, after nine months of war, taking into account that Ukraine is destroyed from the air, Ukrainians have now the strongest army in Europe. And they they actually do not need NATO soldiers on the ground. This is not necessary. They need weapons and they need a different approach towards the war. They have to conduct offensive war. Otherwise, we are risking to give Putin enough time to come to the idea to use nuclear weapons. You said that you don't believe in civil war in Russia. The person who believes it is Ilya Ponomaryov. Uh, some time ago, not so long ago, he organized a meeting here of Russian delegates, people's delegates, who are supposed to create an alternative structure lawfully, which will take power from 
Putin's regime after his collapse. What do you think about Ilya Ponomaryov and his ideas? Well, I, I know Ilya Ponomaryov, he knows me, we have good relations. I would be happy if he would be right. I just do not believe in these forces. I really do not believe in Russia's ability to deal with this problem internally, and I will tell you why. The Soviet Union existed in the format of uh, closed borders and without market economy, and this created a situation when in August of 91, there was an ex kind of explosion of, you know, democratic will in Russia. There were a lot of people gathered on the streets of Moscow to demand the collapse of the Soviet Union and to take power from the Communist Party, etc. Russian Federation exists in a format of open borders and with market economy. And this, of course, allows all those people who are unhappy with the regime for one or another reason, and this might be, you know, personal reasons, economic reasons, political reasons, national reasons, to leave the country. And we know that over the years, since 91, actually, but also since 2000, also since 24th of February, and even uh, since 21st of September, when Putin announced mobilization, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people left uh, Russian Federation. So all those people who are really against the regime, they're not there. They're not there. Uh, they're living normal, sometimes maybe difficult, but normal life abroad. And some people are in prisons, like Navalny, like Vladimir Karamurza, who, who may know very well as well. And these are strong people who are ready to be in opposition to the regime, but there, there are not too many of them. There are not too many of them. And we do not see any crowds or, or on the street. And, and, and again, the difference is that if in a different, uh, well, if in a typical country, president would give a speech similar to Putin's speech of September 21st, people would run out of the houses uh, to main government buildings in their cities to take down the government. And in Russia, they run out of their houses to cross the border. And this is the difference, right? So in Russia, no one really believes that something normal could happen to that country. I mean, people, people live there, people, some people successfully, some people earn money and live happily, economically speaking, but they do not really trust the government, they do not really trust the system, they do not believe that they're able to change the system. So, uh, political parties in Russia are parties which are not fighting for power. This is the only country where political parties do not fight for power. They are fighting to be represented in the Russian parliament because this brings money. I mean, a lot of money to members of the Russian parliament. So it's a kind of economics competition, but not a political one. Army never played any political role historically in Russia, so you cannot count on a military coup d'etat, for example, so this is not Latin America. I really do not see forces which are able to fight for the change of regime, because the strongest element of this regime is the FSB, which created several additional military tools to defend itself, like Rosgvardia, for example, where former chief of security for Putin is in charge, like Mr. Prigozhin, who organized a kind of unconventional forces which are permitted to kill anybody they want to kill or to recruit uh, anybody they want 
to recruit. So there is a certain element of chaos and instability, I would say, because when we see people like Prigozhin acting the way they act, this actually tells us that the, the regime is not stable, that they are using everything they're able to to use what they think would help them to survive. So I think the collapse is possible. I think the Putin's position is much weaker today than it was, of course, nine months ago. But at the same time, this does not mean that this might be a civil Russian society which will bring this down that regime. I would say that this regime would, would go down as a result of the war against Ukraine. The question again is when. And the question is, what after this regime? Uh, do you see any political power, any person in Russia who could replace it? And uh, what will happen to Putin, some kind of Nuremberg? Well, this we would like to see this, of course. I really do not know if Putin survives uh, the war. Probably not. I really do not know if Putin would allow himself to be, you know, sent to tribunal in, in Hague. I think not. The only danger which Russia has for itself and for the world is the FSB. If this organization somehow is dissolved, then I think uh, we may talk about normal Russia and uh, normality in Russia. Uh, what is also possible that uh, they will actually, uh, the, the FSB itself will will bring to us some heads, <laughs> which we would like to, to have, you know, like Putin, Shaigu, Prigozhin, etc., and will try to pretend that they are ready to, to be reformed. I guess uh, in the day number one, we would be happy to have those heads. But in this day number two, we would understand that the FSB is not offering something different to us because we know what we need. We need people in, in Russia, in charge of Russia, who would uh, stop the war, would withdraw Russian troops from Ukraine, would recognize the borders of 2013, would agree in principle to pay reparations for damage which was caused. And again, I'm saying in principle because in reality I'm not an economist. I have no idea how to calculate the level of damage which was done. It's probably so huge that we might be face difficulties to force Russia to pay. And then, of course, to, to send some people for the tribunal. Uh, this is like uh, five simple points. There might be some others like withdrawal from uh, of Russian troops from Transnistria, uh, recognition recognizing borders of 2007 in relation to Georgia. I mean, th there might be some other conditions, right? Of course, the withdrawal of Russian troops from Belarus and allowing Belarus to become a you know, normal democratic European country. Lukashenko, of course, will, will go down very quickly. This, is not, this will not be the problem at all because he is there only because Putin helps him. Uh, the same relates to Kadyrov, by the way, so the Chechen Republic will become independent the moment Kadyrov is gone. So th there will be some changes. I mean, we should expect them. We just, again, do not know how long this will take and how much we will pay in, in the process. But from the point of view of uh, Russian Federation, and this is important to understand, Putin destroyed Russia. Well, this collective Putin, which invaded Ukraine uh, first in 2014, but then, of course, on 24th of February, Putin destroyed Russia, destroyed for generations, maybe even for, for a century or, or two. And the, the implications of this war 
For Russians, this is not, of course, understood inside Russia, but this will bring very dramatic results and changes in, in Russia after the war is uh, over, right? And Ukraine will be rebuilt comparatively quickly. It's going to be a very painful process. We will find out probably that a lot of people were killed or lost uh, more than we are imagining now because Ukrainians are killing uh, Russian military and Russians are killing actually civilians and this is difficult to calculate now and uh, now how many people are killed uh, how many people left Ukraine and probably would never come back for one another reason but Ukraine will rebuild very quickly and uh, will become very you know successful state because it is economically speaking a very you know rich state and it will become you know member of European Union it will become member of NATO this all will happen and Russia will never never uh, rebuilt uh, itself after this war. This is a kind of philosophical issue but that's precisely how this is going to be. I could have probably 10 more questions for you, but I have one which is important from Polish point of view. What do you think, how do you assess the level of penetration of Poland by Russian special forces? I think probably now, and I mean now after 24th of February, it's less important and less dramatic than prior to 24th of February. Because now we are in a stage of open war. And now a lot of people who had, uh, you know, doubts about danger of uh, Russia, who never actually believe that Russia is dangerous, who believe that Russia is just, you know, a difficult partner with whom we could find common language. Now I think more people understand uh, that Russia is uh, extremely dangerous, that this is the only source of aggression in Europe well, serious source of aggression in Europe, that uh, Russia behaves irrationally and there is no way we are able to find common language with them. So I think every time we, I hear about Biden calling to Zelensky, offering him, you know, to to negotiate, to find the way out through negotiations, so Macron is calling Putin. I really think that this, they're just losing time because the problem is uh, Putin, again, the collective Putin, because they are not planning to negotiate. Uh, this is not going to happen. Again, there are no conditions after uh, which, uh, under which they are going to negotiate. So this war will not end through negotiations. This war will end through capitulation of one of the sides. And since I know that this side is not going to be Ukraine, this side at the end uh, is going to be Russia. So, again, I would not speculate about the level of penetration. Of course, I do not know the answer. Or honestly, I do not know the answer. Well, because this is one of the major secrets of, of special special services of, uh, of a serious country, Russian Federation. So, I do not know the answer. But I do not really think that this is important now, not anymore, because we, we are in a stage of open war. And we do not find too many people around who would ask us to capitulate or to negotiate, because in both cases, uh, this does not really bring the result. I mean, let's, if Ukraine capitulates tomorrow, well, 
let's imagine that somehow Ukraine capitulates tomorrow and Putin takes it. Everything we will see is that, that the Russian army, whatever is left of it, would proceed to Moldova. And then everything we will, will see is that whatever is left will proceed to the Baltic states. They're not able to stop. And this is, again, a very historically speaking, it's very interesting. You know, by 1st of September of 1939, Hitler achieved all objectives of his foreign policy. Germans were living unified in one country, well, German-speaking people, let's put it this way. He achieved this goal without major war, without losses. So it, this was like Crimea for Putin in, in a bigger format. And Putin actually reached the same level of success By February 23 of 2022, he was in control of Crimea. He, uh, in reality, had control over Donbass area. He had these Minsk agreements, which were absolutely terrible for Ukraine. They never mentioned Crimea, for example, what for practical purposes meant that, you know, Ukrainians accepted the fact that Crimea belongs to Russia. And uh, they had so many uh, difficult points, these Minsk agreements, that Putin could actually do with Ukraine whatever he wanted to do. He could suffocate it economically, for example, etc. So he himself broke the absolutely ideal situation in which Russia was by 23rd of February, you know, Russia was a rich country. Prices of oil and gas were skyrocketing. Russians were, you know, respected in the entire world as rich tourists, etc., etc. And look what he did. He invaded Ukraine claiming that he wants Ukrainians to speak Russian. Now in Ukraine, even Russians do not speak Russian because they are ashamed to speak this language. He destroyed cities uh, which were historically, you know, 90% Russian. Uh, Mariupol was 90% Russian city. Kharkov was a Russian city. Always was. There were Russians there. Uh, when you hear Ukrainian troops talking to each other, they speak Russian. They do not very often speak Ukrainians because they, these are Russians who are killed by Putin. These are not even Ukrainians very often. That's what he done. He invaded Ukraine so NATO would not move closer to the borders of the Russian Federation. The result is that Sweden and Finland, which were traditionally neutral, are joining NATO now. He invaded Ukraine so Russians would be respected in the world. The result is that Russians are hated in the world now. We may continue, but that's the, the result is completely the opposite. And I, I, I sometimes think that if you fight a person who hates Russia, you know, very, very, very much and ask him to create a project to destroy Russia, even that person would never create the project so damaging as the war against Ukraine, which Putin started on 24th of February. So uh, Russia is just starting pay for these mistakes. Could it be that, you know, the FSB will take Putin uh, down? Yes, I, I believe this is entirely possible now. I didn't believe so, by the way, when he started the war in February. But by now, I think his position, personal position is very weak. This doesn't necessarily will change the regime. But that's, uh, we will see, of course, if, if, if the, the FSB as a structure decides to take him down in order to survive. Thank you very much for this interview. 
Thank you very much for your time. This was the Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 